You're listening to Wholesaling Inc., episode number 521. And he said something very wise I'll never forget. He said, there's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. He says, true nobility is being superior to your former self. And what he's talking about, are you superior to the man you were three years ago? It's that don't look at everybody else. Focus on yourself. Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you continually improving? This is game-changing information guaranteed to raise your real estate wholesaling business with actionable steps you can take immediately to navigate the ins and outs of wholesaling and start making money today. Join us as we put our guests in the hot seat and dive deep to dissect their strategies for success to enable you to duplicate their results. You're listening to Wholesaling Inc., the only show dedicated to making you a fortune in wholesaling. Welcome to the Wholesaling Inc. podcast. I'm Chris Arnold, your host today, and I am super excited about my guest coming on today, Richard Simmons. I always tell you guys, you know, when it comes to running a business, there's two sides to this, two sides of the leadership. There's the performing side, which is the strategy and everything you have to do from a method standpoint to be successful. But the other side, which I find over time, I spend more on, and of course, is the most important, is the becoming side, the being side of a leader. These are the internal things, what's happening in the mind of us as entrepreneurs that keep us from leveling up. So let me tell you about how I came across Richard because I get the question a lot of times, Chris, how do you come across the coaches? You're so big on having coaches in your life, mentors. So it's funny how this story happened. Uh, My older brother will occasionally send me something that he finds valuable and he's like, you got to listen to this talk by Richard Simmons. So I listened to it and it's what you're going to hear today. And it hit me and I was like, I got to get this guy's book. So went out, bought his book. I read it. And then through this, found out that he does coaching as well. And so I emailed him. And so now Richard and I have been dialoguing. We've had a few conversations and it looks like he's potentially going to be coming down to Tulum to our Multipliers Brotherhood that we do I'm super excited about Richard. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He is the author uh, and publisher of 11 books. He runs the Center of Executive Leadership. He's been doing this for about 20 years. And today, this talk is geared towards men. The challenge and struggle we as men have as entrepreneurs, as leaders, even outside of that, but you're going to hear what this is and it's going to resonate. This is one of those talks, you know, Richard, I wish I had heard earlier in the game because I personally fell into this trap early on. And so your content has been super valuable. And if you're tuning in as a female, as a woman today, if you really want to understand what men struggle with at the deepest level, this is something that could be valuable for you to understand about the man in your life, or even the sons that you might potentially be raising. So Richard, excited to have you on today. What's happening, buddy? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I really do appreciate it. Uh, It's an honor for me to be with you. And let me just say right off the bat, whenever I speak to a a group of men and women, I'm always asked, well, why do you just work with men? And my first response is, and I really mean this, is that I really believe that women, particularly emotionally and psychologically, are healthier than men. I truly do believe this, but as you, you noted, I had a woman 
uh, her husband was a college basketball coach and she read the book and she said, and they'd been married probably 15 years at the time. She said, I finally understand my husband and what drives him. And so you're right. It can be very valuable for a woman in your audience. So let's hop in. Let's get to the meat. If you're listening today, here's what you're going to get by the end of this show. What is the true measure of a man? How do we as men measure ourselves? And the real question is, are we measuring ourselves against the right thing? So we're going to kind of go through this process, but know by the end of this, and what I'm going to challenge you, what I realize is the rod that you might be considering to measure yourself be some type of performance could be causing a lot of pain, stress, dissatisfaction. I think that language could go on and on. So let's get to the meat. First question I want to ask you, Richard, is how do men develop their ideas about manhood and masculinity? Well, as you can imagine, it starts when they are young boys. The men in your audience can probably relate to this as they were growing up at some point, uh, maybe when they were five or six or seven or 10 or whatever, uh, they heard these words, be a man. And usually it's in a time where they, that maybe they, they struggled, they cried, they not measured up to the, maybe their father or their coach or their brother. And they hear that, that, that statement kind of demanding them, be a man. And for most young men, young boys, they have no idea what that means because nobody's ever taught them. They begin to imagine, I guess that means I'm supposed to be tough. I'm supposed to be strong. I'm not supposed to be emotional. I'm, not, I'm never supposed to cry. And so it really begins to mess with their lives. I read something really interesting. You'll like this. Uh, there's a Dr. Michael Kimmel. He, he's a, he teaches at a college up in New York called Stony Brook. I'm not that familiar with it, but he teaches a course called The Study of Men and Masculinity. And the first day of class, he stands up and he writes on the board, what is a good man? And he says usually, and he has usually 30 or 40 men in the class, and they just stare at him, and they have no idea how to answer that. And finally, he might get one to say, well, to be caring or to be kind. And he doesn't get much from them. And then he stands up and writes the question, what is a real man? And they get all excited. And they'll say, it, it, it means to be tough. It means to be willing to take risks. It means willing to step out. One young man said, it means to be a real man, you have to walk like a man and talk like a man. And so this is what ends up happening as men's lives develop. And then when you throw in the media that we have and social media, it's so easy for us to develop a certain picture of what we think a real man is. Mm. So what you're finding is culturally, either one, that, that question is difficult for us to answer as men because we've received kind of confusing examples and signals about that. Or if there is confidence about what that looks like, what you're finding is it tends to be off base. And yeah, so this, think, is, this is why this message and even the book that you wrote, which is fundamentally what we're talking about today, The True Resure of a Man becomes so relevant. So let me ask you another question. So why do men struggle you know, to be more transparent with other men? Why, why is that? Why, when this starts to happen, a discussion like this, is this discussion not even taking place? Great question. This is really at kind of the heart of the book is that men, men and women, we all struggle with life, but men don't ever want to talk about it to anybody uh, because we believe that real men are not supposed to struggle. 
Uh, we're not supposed to be afraid. And by all means, we should never get depressed. And so when we do struggle, what do we end up doing? We keep it a secret. Uh, some men won't even share it with their wives. And so what happens to you when you've got all of this going on internally and it never comes out? It never comes out to the light of day. It can lead to all kinds of internal struggles. It can lead to all kinds of mental and emotional and psychological struggles. And not to be too extreme, but I think it's important to know it's in the book that eight out of 10 suicides are men. Mm. Eight out of 10 people that go to rehab for drugs or alcohol are men. So what does that say about us as men? And then I just read this the other day because I was, I was kind of curious about it. Uh, it appears that women struggle with depression more than men. But then this particular research that I read said, but we're not really sure because so many men never come out of the closet and share the fact they're depressed because they think that real men should not be depressed. So I'm just going to kind of hold it in and kind of box it in and never tell anybody. Because what you're saying is if, if I express this weakness, whether it be depression or fear, et cetera, the challenge of that is it's challenging my very core of understanding of masculinity. So the reason I isolate is because if I talk about this, I'm fundamentally, from a culture standpoint, feel that I'm going to be less of a man overall. When you talk about it coming out, I'll tell you a term, Richard, that um, a buddy of mine uses a lot that's been a coach for me is via that isolation and keeping it in, it will come out, but it will come out sideways. Yes. Right? Yes. And that's that yes. bad behavior that you're talking yes. about that you yes. see occur with entrepreneurs. So keep going. Uh, and and I, I would just add is that that's a really good description of how so many men live. Uh, they live in isolation and they live all alone. I mean, you may see them out, you know, being a great guy and, and full of life. Internally, there's a loneliness there and there's an isolation. And it really, really can do a great deal of harm. This is why, you know, we started Multipliers Brotherhood. This is what you're coming, you know, to speak to our community about. The biggest, let's call it epidemic that I see for entrepreneurs, particularly men, is isolation. You go to most men and let's just say it, when the shit hits the fan, when hard things become really hard, they don't have one person in their life that they can get vulnerable with and open up. And this is why leaders and entrepreneurs are not finishing the race well. This is why businesses are collapsing because of some type of moral misstep. So I want to move on to, because we're talking about masculinity. And I loved in your book, and I think you're going to touch on it here, the three Bs of how we measure ourselves growing up. This hit me so hard. Because I was like, this is so true. I can remember each phase. And now that I'm 40, you know, I'm in that third phase and I see it with people that I know in the industry. But what is false masculinity and how are we starting to measure it from childhood to adolescence to adulthood? Before I share that, just one insight that I think is important. One of the most brilliant men to ever live was a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal. And Pascal says that one of the reasons that people struggle so much in life is that we have false ideas about reality. And the false idea that you just brought up is a, a major problem in men's lives, this idea of false masculinity. Mm. And I, I got this from a, a wonderful book called Season of Life by a guy named uh, Jeffrey Marks. And it's about the life of uh, Joe Ehrman. 
Berman was an all-pro football player with the Baltimore Colts. And then he it, really the book's about what he teaches young men as a coach. He coaches. And he talks about how we develop what he calls false masculinity. And he says it starts as with kids on the athletic field. And as young boys are growing up, you have all types of different competitions. And uh, in the process, the kid that's the great athlete, everybody begins to kind of look at him as being the most masculine, the most successful. And those that might not have the athletic ability begin to kind of feel that they're inferior. I mean, just kind of imagine kids on a ball field and they're, and they're choosing sides and you got two guys that are the great athletes and they, they choose people and they start choosing one another. And I, I never really thought about it until I read this book. What do you think it feels like for the young boy that's chosen last all the time? What does it make? How do you think that makes him feel about his masculinity, his the development? first time in his life that he, as a kid, which you don't think about is, I guess I don't measure up. Yep. Right? Yeah. Because now the new standard for popularity, for the measure of myself as a man, as a young boy on the ball field is, well, I guess it's athleticism, right? That's where it begins. And that's, that's the measuring rod. And what happens at this point is when a young boy begins to develop his sense of value and identity. Then you move on to puberty. When puberty hits, you begin to change. I guess the way you keep score changes a little bit. You begin to consider how well do I do with the opposite sex? Not only how attracted are they to me, but how the issue of sexual conquest. As you can imagine, the person that seemed in high school to be most masculine is the one who's the star quarterback of the football team who dates the head cheerleader. And that's the way everything is measured as young men are growing up. And of course, then you get to out into the workforce and you look at the marketplace and ultimately you begin to measure your life by financial success. And so it causes us, all of this causes us to develop a false idea, false idea of what it really means to be a man and what Ehrman calls it, he calls it the three B's. It starts on the ball field when you're a kid, then the bedroom when you get into your teenage years, and then the, uh, the, your billfold as you become an adult. And that's the way so many men have developed their understanding of what it means to be a man and what masculinity is. It is a truly a false view and a false understanding. But when you have that particular perspective, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of disappointment and confusion. When I read that, Richard, I can remember all those phases. I think any guy can remember where you stood and how you felt about yourself when it came to athleticism and high school and college being how you fared with girls. And now, and, and the, what I would ask, and I think this is true, the billfold being the third thing is the season that just continues to go on because a lot of the, let's say, business world and groups that I've run into in real estate, outside of real estate, Every guy is walking around measuring themselves by the size of their bank accounts. Now, that can be by the size of your business and how much revenue that you do. But it seems like men, for the most part, if they don't graduate out of this thinking, get stuck on the financial side pretty much for the rest of their life. And that becomes the ultimate measurement of, of chasing bigger and better. Is that correct? That's correct. And you can see what it does when you go through a financial crisis like we did back in 2009, 2010. If everything is measured by your financial success and because of circumstances that you really have no control over, it goes south on you and you lose everything. Look what it does to a man's life. That's why the suicide rate just skyrocketed during that period of time. 
men thought they were failures. Wow. So I want to make sure you heard that if you're listening. So the challenge is if you attach your identity, your value as a man to performance, particularly performance within business, it's unstable because there are things, let's, and this is why it's such a relevant topic, 2020, COVID, that will come and literally shake the foundations of your finances. And if that's your identity, you're in trouble because your whole self-worth, the way that you view yourself as, I love the way you said it in your book, it goes up and down with the market. So when the market's good and my business is good, I feel great about myself. (laughs) When the market goes down and even if it's outside of my control, I feel like crap. And so therefore, just like stock goes up and down, my personal stock about myself is just being manipulated by the performance of business, which is outside of my control because it's economy driven. I couldn't say it any better than what you just said. I really can't. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. That was the piece that really hit me of how unstable it is. And so that's where we're going to get to. But the big question you should be asking yourself is, well, if I'm not measuring myself by athleticism, the ball field, or by women, you know, being the bedroom and finances being my billfold, then how do you truly measure a man, which is what we're going to get to. So I want to go into this next question. You know, you talk a lot about men's fear in your book. What would you define as, you know, men's greatest fear or fears, plural? Well, ultimately, and you kind of got to dig into it because there's layers and layers that go into this. But for most men, their greatest fear is failure. Failure for most men is kind of like a psychological death. You know, I, I really do believe, Chris, that so many men are not driven to succeed. They are driven not to fail. Ooh, that's good. I have a really good friend here. He's one of the top commercial realists in the, I guess you call it the top commercial realtors in our city. And uh, I've met with him uh, and counseled him and coached him over the years. And I hadn't seen him in a while, but I'll never forget. He told me this. He says, when my feet hit the floor, the one thing that drives me every day is the fear of failing. And at the time I was shocked because he's been so successful. And you look at his, all of his houses and his cars and you think, how can you say that? But what happens is, is that, that he knows deep down what failure does, it can lead to shame. It can lead to depression. Those who fear failing, what ends up happening, and this is really pertinent to anybody in the real estate world, it causes people to play it safe. I don't want to fail. So I end up not taking certain risks in life that I probably ought to take. And so what ends up happening is that for so many men, They look for ways to arrange their lives to make everything predictable. This is a a true survey that was done where a large group, I want to say like 5,000 people aged 95 and old or older were asked this one question. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? And one of the top answers was, I would have taken more risks in life. I was afraid to fail. And they live with great regret because of that. I'm not saying go out, go out and be, uh, uh, take unwise risks, but the fact of the matter is, ask yourself, are you, have you arranged your life in such a way that there's no way you'll ever fail? Because if you do, you will get to the end of your life and you'll find yourself very disappointed. Wow. Man, those are some big dots you just connected because 
what you're now describing is kind of a domino effect in the life of the entrepreneur, right? And particularly as a man, if my value and my identity is in my performance, and therefore if my performance fails, I have to then step back and not take risks, not go for it, because when I fail, it goes to the very core of my identity. So at that point, it becomes a massive limitation. I can't go to the next level. I can't level up because I'm so protective of my identity, knowing that in order to level up, I have to fail. But if I fail, then it's going to challenge the very way in which I feel about myself. Because I think what you're really nailing, right, Richard, is that men are fundamentally defining themselves by performance. This is like a performance trap. Is that right? That's it. it. In fact, one of the talks that I do when I give a public presentation on this, I call it the performance trap. How do you measure a man's life? Mm. And so what you just said was right. And I I really didn't put this in the book, but you know, I, I wrote it 10 years ago. But if I had to add something to it, I would talk about the fact that what people don't realize is sometimes failure can be one of the great blessings of life, depending on how you respond to it. And so that's, a, a, I think, a critical piece to this as well. Mm, that's good. And I totally agree with you. So, you know, if men are comparing themselves to one another, comparing themselves by their performance, their business, their bank account, if that's my measurement, how is that affecting my life as a man? If that is the primary grid or filter in which I am determining my value, what begins to happen in my life? Yeah, comparison is so dangerous. Dangerous may not be the best word, but it can be so... I heard someone say, I thought this was pretty... Comparison can suck the joy out of your life. because, And, and I don't think we realize how much and how often we compare ourselves with others or our stuff with others or our families with other people's families or most significantly, our children with other people's children. This is something that happens very naturally to us. You know, you would think that we could live our lives, be focused on what we're doing and not have to look and say, well, what's my neighbor doing over here? Or what's my competitor doing over here? But for so many people, Again, part of the measuring process is how do I measure up compared to them? And so we compare our accomplishments. We compare our our possessions. Uh, The one that gets me is how we compare our children. And and I've concluded that's why so many parents push their kids so hard. They're helicopter parents. They want their kids to be better than other people's kids because it will be a reflection on me. But what ends up happening, Chris, is we compare There are times it will lead to arrogance because you'll look at people and you'll compare yourself and you'll feel like I'm superior to him in whatever realm that you do the comparison. My kids are superior to them. And so I'm superior. And that's what arrogance can be and what arrogance is really all about. But then it can suck the joy out of you as you start comparing yourself and you realize I don't measure up compared to everybody else or uh, my business doesn't measure up or the house that I live in doesn't measure up to all the people around me. My kids don't measure up. It can really suck the joy out of you. And I read a very interesting book. Let me just share this real quick. It's about an older man, older, wiser man. He was, I guess you could say, mentoring this young man who was in his teen years. And he started talking to him about comparison. And he said something very wise. I'll never forget. He said, there's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. He says, true nobility 
is being superior to your former self. And what he's talking about, are you superior to the man you were three years ago? It's that don't look at everybody else. Focus on yourself. Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you continually improving? And I had a, a conversation with this the other day with a man uh, who is in a very competitive industry. It's a very visible industry. Well, I'll just tell you it's the construction industry, the commercial construction industry. For some reason, our town has four of the biggest contractors in the country, and they're always comparing themselves. And I was talking to one of them, one of them that I coach, and he says, we've had to learn to really and focus on really getting away from comparing ourselves to others. He says, so part of our mission statement now is we are in the relentless pursuit of improvement. In other words, we're focusing on ourselves and seeking to always grow and continually improve. And I love that quote that you gave right at the beginning of that. And, you know, what are you comparing yourself against? Your former self or everyone else around you? So, Richard, when I read your book, the phrase that I put myself, again, I take content and I like to kind of boil it down to a phrase that I can carry with me for the rest of my life. You know, with this whole comparison and performance, what I said to myself is, what I feel like Richard has taught me or the point that you're driving home is comparison will consume you and performance will punish you. Because in comparison, I'm consumed always by how everyone else is doing around me. And performance, it will punish me because something like the COVID will come along. And if my life is dependent and valued on that, I'm going to get punished internally, emotionally, psychologically. And that's what I felt like was the big trap. I was like, man, either you're going to be consumed or you're going to be punished utilizing that as a grid for measurement. Well, Chris, I'll, I'll say this. You really get this book. You get the message of the book. And to me, if men can really get this, and then as you get into and integrate it into your life, it can change you radically and really set you free. That's the key. It's, it's being set free from this. I hope if you're listening to it and you struggle with this, you are literally physically, emotionally feeling the weight if you live in a world of comparison, right? And I see this with, you know, women as well. I'm sure a lot of us men that have wives know what it's like for our wives to compare themselves to other women. It's so tough because it pulls out a lot of insecurities of she's skinnier and she has better clothes. And I mean, I went through all of that living in uptown Dallas is one of the reasons I want to get out of there and come to Mexico. Nobody cares what you wear here. So let's start to bring this home because people are listening going, okay, you guys have diagnosed the problem here. What I need is a solution. Like, don't leave me hanging. And the best part of your book is this solution you're about to bring. Because again, I hear people talk about things like this, but then you brought it home. Before we go to how do you truly measure a man, I do want to hit on this one last question before the final question. And as you have a chapter about life's greatest paradox, what, what is that? Uh, this is so important. In fact, it's so important. I've written a whole other book on it called The, uh, the Power of a Humble Life. The, the paradox is this. Strength is found in humility because arrogance leads to weakness. Now, I, was, I was reading something recently about the Pentagon Papers, and a lot of your listeners not even know what that is, but it had to do with the Vietnam War. And it looked like the United States it became apparent in order for us to win the war, we would have to put up so much more money and lose the lives of so many. And so we should have just pulled out, but we didn't. And in these Pentagon Papers, one of the things you learn is that Lyndon Johnson, the president, and I'm not picking on him, but one of the things, and this is, this is documented, he says, we can't pull out 
because it won't make me look very manly if we do that. And so you have to wonder how world events have been shaped. This is kind of a big picture over time because of our pride and our arrogance. Um, Harvard wrote a, uh, did a study on why leaders fail. One of the main reasons leaders fail, there, there are several factors, but one of the main one was arrogance. And then Jim Collins wrote a wonderful book called Good to Great. But after it, he wrote a book, not as popular, but really good called How the Mighty Fall. And he studied companies that were once large and, and, and profitable and how over time they faded and they eventually collapsed. And he said they went through five stages. And he says the first stage is arrogance. He says they, they believe we're so good. We don't have to change anything we're doing. We don't have to continually improve. And he says that's, that was what started the process of them going down the tubes. And so I get in and talk a lot about what humility is, how you uh, cultivate a humble heart. And to me, it's a very, very important thing because that's where real strength is found. And there's a lot in that, in that chapter that I think uh, your readers would find real profitable. Mm-mm. No, I thank you for that. So here's the question, Richard. We're listening to this, what you're saying is resonating with me, right? I'm putting myself in the shoes of a man right now, driving down the road, listening to this, going, dude, this, this is all over me. Um, I'm resonating this. How, Richard, do we truly measure man? How, how well, do we do that? Yeah, what, it, what is the rod or, or the thing that I should be comparing myself against in a healthy way? What performance should I be gauging? What, what is it? Yeah, and, and what I'm going to share you, with you if, for all the men in the audience, this is what we need to be teaching our young boys uh, as they're growing up. Because as we've already said, most of them, as it is, they measure their lives based on how they perform, their accomplishments how much they accumulate as they get out into the, into the workforce. And so what they're focusing on, if you think about it, Chris, is they're focusing on and they're driven to accomplish, to perform, to achieve. And in the process, they don't. And you said this right when you started this podcast. They don't focus instead on what kind of man am I becoming? You know, that's a whole different issue, focusing on what am I becoming? And so I would say, and it's, it's all in the book, and I speak at it, speak to each of these at length, it starts with your character. Character is everything. You know, basically, we all have reputations. Everybody in the, it's listening to this, you have a reputation with the people that know you and some people that maybe they don't know you, but they know of you. And the main determinant of a person's reputation is their character. And, of course, the, to me, the most important character quality, again, is humility, which we just talked about. Second, then, this is a biggie. It's wisdom. Do you possess wisdom? Are you growing wiser? Because wisdom has so much to do with the choices and the decisions that you make. You see, most people in our culture will say that the choices and decisions you make, most of them are moral issues and you have to make good moral choices. And that's true. But most of the decisions you make are not moral issues. They're judgment issues. Should I do this deal? Should I make this investment? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? How do you raise children? What are my priorities? These are all judgment issues. And if we have wisdom, it assists us in making good life decisions. And then finally, and I think everybody listening to this will agree, your ability to love. 
your ability to love, to have strong, substantive relationships. I think there's not anybody listening to this that would not agree that life is bankrupt without good relationships. And the thing that I would just say is this, that you can pursue strong character. It's something that you can develop. You can pursue wisdom and you can pursue better relationships. At the end of the day, as you get to the, let's say, put it this way, when you get to the end of your life, if people look at you as having, being a man of strong character, one of great wisdom, and one with great relationships, that's what real manhood's about. Mm. And I think as you say it, I don't think that there's a person listening that that doesn't just hit. And don't you find the challenges, though, that particularly in American culture, the men that are elevated, the ones that are writing a lot of the books or on social media, they're elevated simply because our culture measures a man by the billfold. So just because they're a billionaire, just because they've sold X company, they're automatically on the pedestal. But here's what I've seen, Richard. There's certain of those guys that I know, you know, even be involved in bigger networking groups with guys that are worth, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Even though they had all that money, I would meet these men that didn't have character, that had no wisdom. And on top of that, their relationships being their wife and kids was an absolute wreck. And I'm asking myself, well, why is this person still being put on a pedestal within this community? And it was simply because the measurement was the billfold. But when you step back and you look deeply into the happiness and that person's life and their overall health, they were miserable. You know what I'm saying? I do. And I had a, it's interesting. I had a conversation with my, my two youngest children who at the time were probably sophomores and freshmen in college. And I asked this question. I said, take Mrs. Cooley, and, uh, and I can't remember the other teacher's name. It was a man who taught mathematics. And my kid, these, these two teachers, high school teachers, had a, Mr. Hurry was his name, had a huge impact on my children. And I asked them the question, do you consider Ms. Cooley and Mr. Hurry to be successful people? I mean, they teach high school, one teaches math, one teaches English, but they had a profound impact on my children's lives. And I said, compare it to, and I won't mention the person's name. He's on the four, 400, he's in the top 10. I said, here's a man with $50 billion, but he's been married four times and nobody likes him. And his goal is to basically, historically, his goal has been to surpass Bill Gates on the Forbes 400 list as one of the richest people in the world. And that's what his life, I said, what is true success? That gets back to false ideas about reality. And so what you just said uh, is just so spot on. Yeah. And let me hit this last point, which I think is important. As you're, if you're listening to this, this is 2020, we're in COVID. If I'm measuring myself based on performance, something like COVID is going to come and challenge that. And trust me, I don't care who you are listening, top or bottom, the amount of depression, fear, anxiety I've seen going around the real estate community is unprecedented. Now, guys might come on and act like they got all together, but I'm telling you, it's all BS. But here's the thing. If I flip it to character, wisdom, and love, COVID actually strengthens those things, right? A pandemic, a downfall in the economy because I grow wiser because of the challenging circumstance that I'm in. It causes me to value the relationships in my life more because it reminds me of what matters most, right? And then my character, if experiencing this the right way, 
will strengthen my character through the difficult choices and decisions. So rather than my identity going up and down because of a crisis, when it's measured the right way, crisis actually strengthens me rather than throwing me into depression. Is that right to say? But I would add this. It has the potential to do that depending on how you respond to it. The response is everything. You know, rarely are we given opportunities to really grow like we are being presented now with this COVID. But the key is, is to recognize how, how this can be used in my life, as you said, to, to strengthen my character, to increase my wisdom, and to greatly enhance my relationships. And if you can see it that way, it can be a great blessing in your life, which is just a great paradox as well. And that's the way your book helped me see it. That was the reframing I took away from your book, which was, again, publicly, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to create that content, to write that book, because when I read it, it was at the right time for me to step back and go, and am I measuring myself as a man in the right way during this crisis? That's right. That's so right. it was hugely powerful. So. Yeah. For those that listened, again, pick up the book, The True Measure of a Man by Richard Simmons. The other book uh, you have, Richard, that you recommended, what was the title on that? It's called, it's called The Power of a Humble Life. Okay. If you read the first one, yeah, if you read the first one and it really impacts you, this is kind of a follow-up to it and it will resonate, I assure you. And I know you coach and do other things. If someone wants to reach out to you because like, dude, I want to start following this guy. I love this content, or I'd be interested in learning more about coaching, how do people uh, reach out to you? Well, probably the best way, the organization I work for, uh, the Center for Executive Leadership, we have a website, and then I have my own personal website, and, and either one of them would be helpful. My, my website is it's all lowercase, Richard E. Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S, numeral three, dot com. And then you've got the Center for Executive Leadership. It's the center, C-E-N-T-E-R, B-H-A-M, B-H-A-M, dot org. Perfect. Either one of those will get you to, you know, all the, uh, uh, the blogs, the books. The, we have all these recorded messages I've done. So uh, it's uh, having done this for 20 years, we've got a lot of material. I love it. And again, we'll put those in the show notes um, so you can just easily click the link. And Richard, thank you so much for your time. What a great conversation, a transformational conversation. So appreciate your time, buddy. And to the rest of you, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, we will catch you soon to add more value. Talk to you soon. Thanks. That's all for this episode. Your next step to success is to continue the conversation over at wholesalinginc.com by joining the mailing list as well as get your chance to book a strategy session to learn the systems and become part of the tribe and work personally with one of our amazing coaches. We'll see you next episode with more ways to make you a fortune in wholesaling.